welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception. Welcome to season three. Um, this season, we're swapping roles. I'm going to pick the older films that have an anniversary, uh, and Chris is going to pick the newer films. So, Chris, what are you going to choose here, or what did you choose to uh, kick off season three of Film Trace? Yeah, I know it was yeah technically my pick, Dan, uh, but I do think that it w- there was some synchronicity happening because uh, I asked him already before. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I I was hyped that this movie was finally coming to VOD because it was uh, all sorts of uh, buzz was happening throughout the calendar year in 2020, and especially with the awards season upon us. Um, it's promising, young woman, the debut. Uh, feature from Emerald Fennell and starring Carrie Mulligan. I was completely just like enraptured by the discourse TM that was happening on film Twitter uh, regarding this movie. And I thought that, you know, anytime there's one of those films where it's like people either love it or hate it. And it's very rarely that somebody is some somewhere in between. Yeah. That, that that's ripe for exactly what we're trying to do here, which is to figure out, you know, where this movie came from and if it kind of succeeded in executing the what it set out to do. And I don't know, it was really fun to research this one. It kind of reminded me actually of our very first episode back in season one with uh, Defy Bloods. Um, not, you know, uh, lots of things different about it, especially because that was a very accomplished writer-director, Spike Lee. But just in the sense of like, there's just so much out there to take in. Like it seemed like Emerald Fennell was doing the interview circuit oh, yeah. just as heavily as Spike was back then. A hundred percent. Yeah. Like this one too, because it like it did the Sundance thing uh, in January and they, you have all the interviews from that. And then there's all this stuff over the, like the last couple of months when it finally came out, there's just tons of, tons of dialogue and interview to like digest and sort of how, how do you fit into the narrative narrative of this film, how it was made. I will say that like uh, what you're saying, like the discourse on film Twitter and stuff like that, that is definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to do this um, because this is one of those films that had a huge amount of buzz when it premiered at Sundance, then kind of disappeared because of COVID was supposed to come out in April this year. Never happened because all the theaters shut down. Um, and then right around maybe like a month or two ago, uh, it was all over Twitter and people were just sort of like, it was Oscar buzz essentially for Carrie Mulligan, uh, and Bo as well as a supporting actor. Um, it, it had that sort of ecstatic response from the film Twitter people that like, you can't turn away from a movie mm-hmm. like that when people are talking at that level, especially what, you know, it's an indie flick too. Um, there's just a sort of an intoxicating level of hype to this film that I think we had to talk about it. Right. That's kind of how I felt about it. Like we couldn't not do it. Um, I don't know. That's how I felt about it. I mean, how do you feel now that we've chosen it after you've seen it just to get that out of the way first? (laughs) For sure. I mean, you know, uh, it's, it's a ride. I I think that's something that we can agree on, even if, uh, I don't know, I don't know how much our opinions are going to necessarily diverge. Um, but my, I mean, my opinion is definitely kind of, uh, uh, gone all over the place. The, the roller coaster of thinking about the film after the fact is not dissimilar to the actual roller coaster of watching the film Um, 100% true yeah yeah it was I mean so here's okay we should probably give a log line right at the bat Uh, 
what is this movie about? Uh, I mean, it, the, the title is a riff on the kind of infamous uh, verbiage that was used with, um, uh, I don't even remember the dude's last name, the dude Brock, who yeah. committed rape in the alley. And uh, he was called a promising young man, uh, despite being a rapist. And he essentially got away with a horrific crime. And it kind of revealed the obscene injustices not only in the criminal justice system when it comes to uh rape allegations um but also just in the misogynistic you know world that we still live in and in some ways have really not done a lot of improvements upon which i think is important to kind of as a precursor to this whole thing i mean uh the irony or the uh Maybe, in my opinion, anyways, necessity um, is not lost on me of, you know, two dudes sitting down to do a podcast about a movie that is all about, you know, uncovering the deep-seated misogyny that exists in our world. Uh, but it, nevertheless, it's a movie, and I think that uh, we, we are going to try to do justice by it, especially as uh, two dudes trying to take in what uh, was yeah. put forth by this crazy... Uh, narrative, which is, uh, according to, you know, the classic Google summary that we always start <laughs> off with, nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's wickedly smart, tantalizingly cunning, and she's living a secret double life by night. Now an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs from the past. I feel like that's even more generalized. That, that's not a good logline. No. I looked at that and I was like, this is, what is this? How, let's do our own logline. Okay, go for it. Dan. Um, I would say like, hey, this, this movie is about, like, so Cassie's the main character. She's depressed. She's turning 30. Um, something happened to her friend in college or medical school. Uh, it was devastating to that person. That person is no longer with us. Uh, they never tell us exactly what happened to Nina, but it's implied that she committed suicide. Um, and Cassie is sort of taking revenge on men, uh, not necessarily men who are connected with what happened, just generally men, uh, by pretending to be drunk going out at night and then, um, basically putting them in compromising situations and sort of playing with their heads and making them feel terrible for it's essentially attempting to rape her. Um, that's essentially the setup. And it's also the setup that started the whole idea of the film. Um, so, uh, Emerald Fennel basically said, that's how the film started was that idea of this girl going out alone at night, pretending to be drunk, basically laying a trap, uh, for some, you know, disgusting men, um, to take advantage of her thinking that she's wasted, you know, getting to go back to their apartment, her apartment, whatever doesn't matter. And sexually assaulting her while she's uh, intoxicated to the point of not knowing what's going on. Um, that's sort of, that's the setup. Is that a good, decent setup? Yeah. Pretty much. I think uh, the big thing that, you know, I, I always like to try to be as in, dar- in the dark as possible uh, when watching a movie, which makes this whole process of doing this podcast, you know, kind of tricky at times. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think the 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 big thing that stuck with me or that was like a block for me was that sure. uh, was this going to be a movie where she did something nefarious, that she was kind of an anti-hero? I was like from the press and the discourse TM as well as the trailer. I very much thought that I was kind of walking into an American psycho gender swapped kind of thing. Oh, I thought so. I a hundred percent thought the same thing. I think a lot of people thought that. Um, So it was, and even with, you know, the opening, there's a whole opening 
a cold open essentially with uh, Adam Brody as her mark. And uh, it's very much left open um, to the point where she walks away from this uh, encounter, this confrontation after she reveals to him that she's actually sober, but it, it, you know, all of a sudden it just cuts to next, it, you know, it's sunrise and she's walking away and I think she's holding like a pastry or a donut and there's red dripping down her arm to the point where like my wife and I are watching like, is that blood or is that jam yeah. from the donut? And I mean, it's, and then that it's kind of indicative of the movie as a whole is that it's, it's constantly trying to mess with your expectations and assumptions uh, with regards not only to gender, but also to genre too, which is a whole other bag of worms that I'm sure we're going to get into. Yeah. I mean, this even saying Adam Brody just makes me think of this cast. <laughs> yes. Right. Like Carrie Mulligan, uh, Bo Burnham, Alison Brie, Clancy Brown. I mean, Jennifer Col- Laverne Cox. It just goes on. Molly Shannon shows up in a scene. Right. Uh, Max Greenfield. I'm like, it's, it is really super stocked cast. Uh, and a lot of the, like the Adam Brody thing, I had no idea he was in it. Uh, and he just shows up and he's gone in the next, you know, next scene, essentially. It's just, it's very effective, I felt like, um, yes. to have these, you know, super powerful actors, but also actors that have a very clear cultural identity uh, and to put them in these roles that sort of, to some degree, like play to that, to some degree, undermine that cultural identity that a lot of people share with these people. I thought that was pretty. And she does it. On, she, uh, she's doing it on purpose, like you said. She's trying to make you feel. Uh, and she says this over and over again in the interviews. She's trying to get people to um, positively and pleasurably engage with this film and then basically pull the rug out from underneath them. And she she does that very, very well throughout this. Um, what about who produced this and how sort of that sort of background here? Yeah, so this, I mean, it's not surprising, but I think it's notable and not really getting a lot of play in the press that this is essentially not just Emerald Fennell's movie, but it's also pretty much with R- Margot Robbie's money. Uh, yeah. She and her husband, uh, Tim Ackerley, uh, have a small production studio called Film Nation. I say small, but really they've been gaining in I'm sorry, no, Lucky Chap was the one founded by Robbie and her husband. There's Film Nation, which is huge, which uh, has been known for ever since The Road came out in 2009, um, the Cormac McCarthy adaptation, and then they took home Best Picture Oscar with the King's Speech, and so they've been a major player for over a decade now. But Lucky Chap is essentially the seed of where this movie came from, because uh, Emerald Fennell had been a small-time actor, and you know she had uh, a pretty significant role as showrunner and head writer of Killing Eve. Eve season two, but for the most part, like she had no foothold in the feature industry, especially uh, stateside, because uh, uh, Killing Eve is a you know BBC America production. So uh, Mar- Margot Robbie with uh, uh, the huge success of I Tanya, her studio Lucky Chap kind of blew up, and uh, th- it seemed like these two uh, filmmakers um, had really the same kind of idea with the exact kind of vibe and tonal tone that they were going for to the point where like, you know, they are relatively the same age, grew up in the nineties, kind of, you know, our age, like early thirties, mid thirties. And they have this really this huge fascination with combining like the entertainment aspect with the kind of more subversive uh, feminist aspect. And so when they put this movie together, it seems like it was, I don't know, it was like, 
lightning in a bottle. You've got Birds of Prey coming out er- earlier last year, and yeah. uh, they've now got Greta Gerwig's Barbie adaptation coming out along with the new Yorgos Lanthimos project. And it seems like, you know, this this really, you know, touchstone moment of Robbie blowing up as an actor, but also then Emerald Fennell moving over to features from TV. I, I mean, it's just amazing to see you to think about where they could be going next. Yeah. And I, just the, the, the Margot Robbie angle here on the I Tanya stuff. Cause uh, like that, the tone of that film is so specific and so interesting. And I didn't even think about that until I was reading this just now, but it does have a somewhat similar tone uh, to promising young woman. Like there's this, like you said, it's like this saccharine sheen to everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's this brutal undertow. Uh, and I think, you know, killing Eve is um, another example of that obviously. And what's funny about that is I hate that style on killing Eve. <laughs> the house. Style. And I actually yeah. really dislike that show. <laughs> um, and I got through season one and a little bit of season two. And I was like, I, this is just not my thing. And I called it, I always called the BBC house style. Um, yeah. There's another show, I think it's called like um, Bodyguard or something. That's very similar, huge show in the B- in Britain, I think in the world now, because uh, it's on Netflix. Uh, but it has this, there is that sheen to everything. Um, and in Killing Eve, uh, there's this horrific violence that happens. And there's no come down. There's no sort of repercussion to the violence in any sense that I could really feel. It felt like the violence is like ultra violence and sensationalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this film, I did not feel that at all. Right. Um, I don't know. I felt like the violence in this film, um, and there's a whole part of this in the production thing. We'll probably talk about how um, Fennel did not want to really pull any punches with the violence uh, in this film and really showing it for what it is. Uh, and there's a specific scene. I don't think we want to get into the the huge spoilers here of, of what happens here at the end. Um, but there's an act of violence committed against somebody that is just disgusting. And it just sits there on the screen for two and a half minutes, she says, because she asked, uh, I believe her father-in-law is a police officer or something. How long would it take to do this to somebody? And it, he said, that's the amount of take, two and a half minutes. And we sit there for two and a half minutes on the screen. Um, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but I have to sort of like throw this out there. Like on the first test screening, people got into like a fight over that scene because it's so brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that that matches up with the I, Tanya killing Eve tone that I'm talking about? Or is it something different? No, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. Cause uh, I mean, once again, I, Tanya is a movie centered around a single, very brutal act of violence. Right. But then yeah. it's played for laughs. I actually didn't enjoy <laughs> I, Tanya. I should probably put that interesting. up <laughs> straight up. Uh, I, I, I was frustrated throughout my watch of it. I thought the performers did great. I just thought the whole, you know, kind of good file, good fellas editing style and documentary yeah camera facing like i'm glad that they didn't pull any of that stuff in this in this film uh because it felt very it like it felt very original that way it was not aping anything um but you're right in that the like the tonal shifts and the juxtaposition is is similar i would say it's even it's way better done in this movie because you have such a clear vision not only from the writer director it's not you know you're not kind of feeling restricted to any kind of source material per se or IP, but also just like, I think that's one of the things that I was mentioning earlier where it's like, I've had kind of a roller coaster ride, not just during the, 
viewing of the film, but also afterwards thinking about it, because the scene you're referring to, uh, basically the climax of the film, I'm trying to remember, I, other than some, you know, pushing or shoving, uh, is the only act of violence in the movie that happens on screen anyways, that's not inferred, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that that's, and she actually talks about that in one of the interviews, like with Variety, how she, yeah, she basically, she's just, yeah, it's that weird sort of, you feel like going to this film, it's going to be this this really um, violent rape prevents exploitation flick, because that's how we've been sort of, maybe programmed to see these types of movies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've seen that stuff before, like I'm thinking, you know, last house on the left, I spit on your grave, like the older ones in my head, or even like the Hills have eyes is kind of fits in that to some degree. Right. Or even Um, the newer ones like kill bill or hard candy. Right. It's exactly. Yeah. So I think, yeah, there's like this, um, she's playing with us, right? Right. She wants us to go in here to think that, um, Cassie is going to be this violent serial killer um, because, um, you know, someone hurt her friend and and sort of like playing up that idea of revenge, basically saying like this act of violence will lead to other acts of violence because that's how bad that original act of violence is. <laughs> right. And so I think that's what all of our sort of heads are going with with this. And she just plays it. She doesn't even play it the other way. She plays it the other way, then goes back and forth. It's like this weird weaving of tone and genre that I think is incredibly hard to do well. Yes. Uh, I really do. Like, in, in, in listening to her sort of talk about the conception of the film, the original script, and how it all came came to be, I'm kind of in awe of what she's done here. Yes. Um, because, you know, tackling a subject like this, um, you know, sexual violence against women – uh, now during, you know, you call it the me too era. It's just tackling that in general ever is very tough to do in a way that is respectable and insightful. Um, especially in like a 90 minute film that has a very saccharine sheen to it. That's incredibly difficult to do. And I think that she, she somehow manages to do it here. Um, you know, when talking about the conception of this, you know, where the idea came from and sort of her really explicit attempt to make it look a certain way. Do you feel like that juxtaposition of the topic of sexual violence against women uh, versus the tone and look of the film? How do you think that plays out? Do you think that that undermines the insight that she's trying to get across about rape culture and misogyny? Or do you feel like, um, it kind of gets people in the door to think about it. Yeah, I mean that, that, and that's ultimately where I've I've come down on the tail end of what you just said, uh, sure. because I was I was really stuck on this idea that you know, well, first of all, like sexual violence or violence, right? It's both violence, and sure, yeah, and so the act that happens towards the end of the film in its climactic moments, uh, while not necessarily sexual in, in nature, though, you know what happens before that kind of leads up to it uh, is, is sexual in nature. Um, It just, it really stuck with me that there's only one violent scene in the film, but it's very brutal and it's very intense and does not let up. But the, so, but then at the end of the day, still the only act of the violent of violence in the movie is against a woman. And true. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's the whole depiction chicken or egg situation, right? Um, Mm -hmm. 
with what, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, I was sick with it and I, fe- I felt sick with it. I felt sick with it. Similar. The thing that kept flashing in my head, both during and after the film was the horrific way in which, uh, hopefully this isn't a spoiler alert cause the movie's pretty old now. Um, way in which Jennifer Jason Lee is killed at the end of the hateful eight, uh, Quentin Tarantino. Okay. Movie. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and it's just like, that, that's my least favorite Tarantino. It was kind of also the moment where like I started realizing that I've kind of matured out of the Tarantino uh, mode of movie making. And yet here it is happening again, but with a woman behind the camera. But then also like at the end of the day, I'm still thinking about it and talking about it and wrestling with it. So I don't yeah. know if necessarily well, you have to care about the way the journey that you got there. Cause we still got there. I think, yeah, definitely. I had a similar reaction when I first saw, like up until the ending of this film, I was like, I don't think I was on board with what mm-hmm. Fennel was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the end I was, it was like almost immediate, like after the ending, I was like, Oh, like that clicked for me for some reason, like how it all plays out. And it's interesting too. So we're talking about what we think she intended, but she, told us what she intended yes, in a lot of yes, interviews, yes. right? Um, and we'll just like, we'll pull some quotes from like, this is stuff from like Variety and all these other video stuff that she did over the last year. Um, you know, like the basic conception of the film. What I want, uh, this is her quote here, uh, Emerald Fennel, writer and director. Uh, what I want to do is to try and write a film about an ordinary woman and how an ordinary woman might take revenge in the real world. And that's very rarely reaching for a gun. It's sort of a more weird and, and twisted than that. So I guess Promising Young Woman is a sort of twisted female revenge comedy. And then she pauses thriller. So one <laughs> thing when you watch interviews with Fennel, it's she's a fascinating person because like she she wants to be very open and honest with what she's doing. And clearly she's doing all these interviews like that's also kind of not normal. Um, a lot of the times directors and stuff like this are just not going to get out and sort of explain their movie over and over again to like a hundred people, but she's decided to do that. So we're, we kind of win doing this show because we have a lot of her own words and her intention of what she was trying to do here. Uh, but the one thing that came up a lot in her interviews was that she wasn't clear how to describe the film in terms of genre. Um, she also says later on that it's definitely a genre film that it's a rape revenge genre film. And then sometimes she calls it a comedy, comedy thriller, a dark twisted comedy thriller for her say. So she's kind of, it's kind of a little bit nebulous where the, she thinks that this fits in that could be good or bad. Um, she also says, I think the tone of the movie I hope is kind of horrifyingly dark comedy and a thriller, uh, but totally certainly does not. Uh, it does sit on a razor's edge of horrendous and hilarious. Uh, which is kind of the space I like to be in. I like that response of when people kind of laugh, then gasp because they feel they feel bad for laughing. Um, she and there's variations of this throughout the different interviews where it's kind of something similar. Um, and I think that like that that's super dangerous to do with the, a movie like this, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because like, you she's taking a huge gamble. I I think so. Yeah, I think it's a very, very big gamble to do this. Um, And the point of, I think, the whole sort of, you know, why she's doing that, and she says this, is she wants the movie to be pleasurable. She wants people to enjoy it, uh, but also to analyze it and certainly engage with, and she says, um, 
you know, you want people to feel like a bit of tension after a film like this. Well, that's, I think, understating it to some degree. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I think also, too, it's important to try and figure out why is she asking these? Why is she making a film like this in general? Right. It's not just about getting a response from people. Right. It's not just not to sort of like, oh, here's a genre flick. It's going to surprise you. That's it. You know, she does say this sort of fundamental question of this film is if this if this if this thing is fine, why do we feel so weird about it in terms of talking about sexual violence and rape culture in general? Um I don't know. It sounds like you think that she was not super successful in that latter part of getting people to think and analyze uh, about rape culture and sexual violence in general. Well, I mean, I I very much love that she. I, I maybe I'm just more of a cynic than she is. I like mm-hmm. that she's she's uh, willing to to assume the best out of the viewers of her film, and I think in a lot of cases that's true. I guess what concerns me, and uh, I should also, you know, grain of salt uh, disclaimer, because I teach teenagers and teach film to teenagers. And so you can be sometimes off. A lot of times they surprise you, but a lot of times also there's that like, you know, it's the prefrontal (laughs) cortex lobe thing where it's like I it's really hard to imagine at the end of the day the, the. the discourse you want coming out of it, coming out of it. Sure. Um, I think that for me, it works because of, I mean, it, 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 I don't know, man, it's, I feel more speechless about this movie than perhaps any other one we've covered on this show <laughs> because it, it, it is such a wonderful achievement just on a very objective level, but there's yeah. so many like things that she does that, are risky and that's admirable on the one side, but it's also, you know, I don't, well, I don't I, know. I, if, I don't know if uh, Cassie ends up being the kind of character that um, sparks conversation and pro- progress, or if she's the kind of character that stagnates it and limits it. Interesting. Let me throw you, let me throw a little curveball. Okay. Um, so kind of what you're saying, I, I get what you're saying, um, but I think we've almost had maybe similar conversations about a movie that maybe like to a completely different subject, which is not nearly as um, sort of dire as this, uh, but something like a Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, the intention there is to show American greed and complete immorality um, in a certain way. But Scorsese tends to – he has this element of grandiosity. Uh, and Goodfellas is another example, a, a movie that I actually dislike very much. Hmm. Um, and because I think it uh, uses violence in a way that doesn't show the repercussions of violence. But the similar stuff has been said about Wolf of Wall Street where it sort of uh, makes this lifestyle so attractive on some level to some people. Or the original Wall Street. Like would how would you – put this film in that sort of vein is it a critical piece of art that fails in its criticism and because it's not communicating it well enough or is it successful and it just some people are going to misinterpret it you know i don't i think 
I feel like I'm kind of talking around things because we're <laughs> avoiding spoilers. Is it okay, Dan? I feel like we've done this before. Yeah, yeah, we listening. can spoil this thing. I got to talk about the original <laughs> ending anyway, so let's do right. this. Okay, so if, you, if you've been listening before watching Promising Young Woman, I absolutely think it's worth your $20, or if you're listening to this a few weeks from now, your 6 or $4. Go rent it and then come back and listen to the rest of the episode. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the biggest concern I have with the movie sure. is how is the happy ending that it has despite our protagonist dying before the you know final act of the film. It's yeah. essentially, I mean, that, that is another thing that's most interesting about it. Uh, you know, most rape revenge movies follow the three act structure. She's opted for the five act and does a very clever, you know, uh, wrapping of the uh, tally marks that Cassie keeps in her diary um, when the fifth act is revealed. Um, but essentially, especially with the title having a play on the, the, the horrible way that both the media and the um, justice system uh, treats um uh, women who accuse men of rape being rapists. Uh, the end of the film is that the uh, original rapists and complicit um, people that don't do anything to stop the rape from happening of her friend in college uh, are taken away by the cops, right? And it's kind of assumed that, you know, with this videotape evidence that the Alfred Molina's lawyer character has that they are going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And that is honestly the piece that loses me the most. So it's not actually even, you know, I got over, as I've said before, I come to the other side of it, the depiction of uh, Cassie's murder, the depiction of um, uh, the, you know, kind of like the, the comedy angle of this whole rape revenge thing. I can, I can get past that. But okay. it's the it's the final act, and I really love your reaction to it because I think one of the best quotes that Fennell gave was to The Atlantic. She says um, she wanted the world of her movie to look the way the world uh, wants women to look, which is pretty and soft and pink, but underneath it all is a boiling pit of rage. And I think that's a wonderful descriptor, except for those final moments of the film. Yeah. Where is no, the... Bo- I think that, like... You, go ahead. Yeah, keep no, going. No, I mean, where... Like, just where is it? Why are we suddenly putting our faith in the cops and a dirty lawyer to yeah. to fix all the problems that have been plaguing and end up killing both our protagonist and her best friend? Now I'm going to bring up Tarantino again, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that ending, right? This is a fairy tale. This is make-believe. And, like, I think Fennel goes out of her way to show us that this isn't real. And there's no, there's not a lot. It's funny, like, there's moments where she attempts the naturalism, like the violent death with Cassie. But the overall film itself is kind of played, I want to say it's a dark comedy more than anything. Sure. Uh, And that's why I think that ending, to me, fit really well with that overall genre lens that she's putting this through. And I think she very deliberately made this a comedy because, you know, I think a lot of people going into this, we talked about this a little bit, wanted a polemic. They wanted a dogmatic, fanatic uh, movie that was against, um, you know, rape culture and and patriarchy and stuff like that. And that's not what this is at all. Uh, And I think that like that and that juxtaposition or that sort of failure to 
follow through on a lot of our expectations. And again, that's certainly what I expected. I expected this to be like, I spit on your grave essentially. Um, which, you know, ends with the woman who is raped committing extreme acts of violence um, against her perpetrators. That's what I assume this is going to be. And when that doesn't happen and the revenge comes after her own death, it just has a super different um, emotional sort of reaction that it, that it pries out of you. And it's not one of justice necessarily, I don't think. Um, and it's not one of sort of finality. Uh, there is kind of an open door here that she sort of talks about uh, in the interviews. Basically, she didn't want this to be a fanatical piece of work. Um, she wanted it to start a discussion with people. Mm-hmm. And I think that you hit, I think you hit the nail on the head though. Does this, is this really going to start a discussion that's going to make people right. um, look at how they act and treat other people in a way that is going to be self-critical? Uh, or is it just going to be like, oh, that was a really interesting movie, uncomfortable movie. Um, and that's kind of leave it in the back of their head. Is it actually going to spark the discussion that she wants it to? Um, and I don't know that it will. Um and I would say the one thing I do have to bring up is that the original ending of this film mm-hmm. was way more bleak. Um, so the original ending in the script, it ends with the fire in the mountains with basically Cassie being burned to death. And that's it. There is no fifth act where the police come and get them uh, and, you know, arrest them for the rape, but also arrest them for murder. Uh, that doesn't happen. There's no moment of this sort of, restorative justice uh and to me i don't know i don't know what do you think about that ending if she kept it with that the studio wouldn't let her it sounds right, like right uh and i mean i i don't know if i necessarily like that version of the ending either because Wait, how of, should it end how do you I, want it to end i, I really want to know i'm like i'm, I'm, I'm uh, i how should it end i actually would have been hmm i know it's a tough question it is it, it, it's it's tough and it, i i just it, I don't. I don't know. I think that at the end of the day, yeah, I think you're right. I think that she there is this fairy tale element, but where the first, you know, third of the film really lives is especially once there's this reveal. I don't. It's kind of a real reveal, but also there was. I think there's so much like playing with narrative technique here that like, uh, you know, she, you know, it's left open ended what she did to Adam Brody, right? Um, and yeah. then she ha- uh, meets Christopher Mintz Plus's character, McLovin from Superbad, mm-hmm. right? And she does the confrontation, reveals that she's sober, and lets him off the hook. Uh, but also, you know, sitting in that realization of what he was about to do. Yeah. And so for like a few minutes when I was in the middle of that s- of screening, I was thinking like, oh, what was it about this character that made her like feel pity for him but in the previous like i was still under the impression that she maybe killed or maimed adam brody yeah and so so then there's just like and then also just like the it seems like that's one of the big conversations with these kinds of rape revenge movies is you know the whole uh you know it's the it's the 
the death wish thing, right? Where it's like the vigilante justice. And so, you know, the justice system won't give you justice. So you got to take it into your own hands. But then it's like, okay, so she's not actually bringing justice back on the patriarchy, but she is like trying to just like have them wake up. I don't know. It almost seems like the movie itself um, is, you know, the real world's version of what Cassie's character was doing, which is like, wake up and she kind of winks at that it was actually a moment that i really enjoyed in the opening bit of the film when she actually breaks the fourth wall a little bit and she says what are you doing and she looks at the camera and yep yep and so i'm like okay yeah voyeurism joke i'm into it but then it's but then it just feels like that all falls apart kind of in the middle of the film when it tricks you with this red herring rom-com uh journey that yeah, with Bo. She, which she goes on with Bo Burnham's character. And, you know, there was, it just, I feel like if I wanted to change the ending, I would have also wanted to change, like, you know, the third, fourth, and fifth pieces of the film as well. Um, but it's not my movie, right? And it's hers. And uh, I think that even though it's kind of a mess tonally, and it's also kind of a mess uh, uh, yeah. with what it's trying to say, it, it, it's enough to be worthy of grand discussion. And so ultimately you're back to that original discussion that you mentioned, which is like, is it going to actually spark that? I think with some people with maybe enough people, yes, but I don't know if it's, it does it in such a way where it, it, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I just wanted a polemic. Maybe that's it. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I think that that's interesting. I think that with a lot of these films, that's what we want. Right. Uh, We want, um, we want her to basically kill all of them. Yeah. But where this gets, I think where it gets really kind of off the rails of that, I don't mean necessarily in a bad way, but like she does things to people that, you know, created the system where someone can get away, but weren't directly involved with the actual crime where she does some pretty horrific things to those people. And that's where to me, it kind of switched over to, Oh, this isn't really, you know, we called it every genre in the book, right? Um, but it's more of a character study about Cassie and about somebody who is essentially falling apart as a human being. And that, like, she is on this path of revenge that has one ending. She's going to die, mm-hmm. right? She There's no other path that she is on. It kind of reminds me of, I'm trying to think of another movie that would be like this, um, where it's just, I don't know, it's just somebody sets on has revenge and there's this moment where she could pull back. There's two moments. There is the rom-com part with Bo, which it, we, we learned later that it's probably not at all what it seemed. Right. Yeah. One, which I thought was very well done, but obviously like telegraphed, but there's this moment with her friend's mother, Nina played by Molly Shannon, where I think we have this moment of realization that, Hey, you're going to self-destruct. Like, this is all self-destructive. Mm-hmm. You know, and there is no, you know, even the person who's, you know, um, the person who died, her mother has sort of maybe not moved on or anything like that, but is dealing with it in a way that is, you know, constructive. Cassie is not. Cassie is dealing with it in a way that is hurting herself, hurting other people, and sort of spreading out that violence and revenge and sense of justice that she wants, but it's really consuming her completely. 
Um, and I don't know. I, I felt like that was such an integral part of the film, which I did not expect at all. Yeah. I, I mean, I just expected that this is going to be like this, you know, let's hack up these terrible people because they're awful because what they did was so wrong and it is. And we need to sort of recognize that as a culture. Uh, and it just doesn't happen. And I think that that on some level that's frustrating. Um, and you know, I, I totally understand. What did other people think about this movie? Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's where get we at? to the, to the release and reception, um, aside just from us. Uh, so Rotten Tomatoes ultimately went with 92%, 80 out of a hundred real score, uh, top critics, 94%, 81 out of a hundred real score and Metacritic at a 71. So, uh, it's pretty much universal acclaim, except, you yeah. know, the way Metacritic scores things is a little stricter. So essentially you have, I'd say the critics aren't necessarily gunning for this to be top 10 of the year, but maybe top 20. And yeah, it is hitting right. a lot of people's lists. And I will say, like, uh, uh, we haven't perhaps given enough credit to Carrie Mulligan's performance. She's an actor that I have not liked at Me all. Me too. I've always, I've never liked her before. Even in movies that I love that she's been in, like Drive and Mudbound, I thought she was, you know, pretty one note basic, but she brings it in this movie. Yeah. And it's like she's finally woken up as an actor and figured out how to do something more than, you know, what she did for the first decade of her career. So good on her. It's a fantastic performance. I do hope she gets at least a Golden Globe, if not also an Oscar nomination for it. Um, audience response, uh, Rotten Tomatoes audience is 89, Letterboxd 78. Uh, and so you have ultimately IMDb is 74. Ultimately, once again, like a really good, like almost bordering on the edge of classic. And I think this comes back down to what you were saying, Dan, where it's like it, it, fe- it feels so close to really being a discussion generator, but yeah. uh, it's not quite there. Um, in terms of like staying power, perhaps. And we kind of saw that, like you mentioned earlier, with uh, you know all the hubbub it caused in January, and it didn't really come back into um, the, the, the discourse TM until later in the year when it was clearly going to be on VOD and be vying for awards. Um, what do you think was the budget of this movie? I know she mentioned shoestring, right? Yeah, I in mean, interview. I would guess under 20, maybe. Maybe See, twenty to thirty, not, and I'm wondering if maybe it was even under ten. I'm tr- I was trying to. There look was at another, it. yeah. There was another quote somewhere that made it sound like the, the shoot was only twenty three days, right? Which is very tight. Um, and so yeah, maybe it was. It kind of has that feeling too of being very low budget, but like very done by a very like competent group of people. Right. So it looks amazing, but like you can tell they cut corners on a lot of different areas. Um, yeah, I would say probably like twenty or below. Um, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and it looks amazing though. Like that's the thing. Right. That's what I was going to say is like, whatever the budget is like the, if, if this film does have staying power, it might be because of its style, not necessarily because of its substance. And uh, so even, you know, opening in the pandemic, it's only gotten a little over 3 million, uh, you know, 719 K opening, which I think is actually not that bad for the pandemic. Am I wrong? No, that's pretty good. I mean, it's hard to tell with the pandemic because the numbers are all over the place, but it's definitely not bad. Yeah, um, it's not tanking by any stretch of the imagination at all. Right, and with the discussion that it's generating, at least in the moment, uh, with a twenty dollars price point, I know we were doing the podcast, but I was expecting it to be you know six or seven, and I still shelled it out anyways. And it seems <laughs> like there's a lot of people saying like you know, unlike other movies, 
uh, like Trolls World Tour. Um, and obviously that's a different sub different audience, different demographic. But uh, it seems like this it that that is one of its, you know, special um, uh, qualities is that it's it's worth it if only to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it would not I would not be surprised if if Lucky Chap and Film Nation mark it down and Focus Features who distributed it uh, mark it down as a win. Yeah, I think they do. And I think, you know, just in terms of like, you know, our opinions and the critics opinions, there's a couple of like poll quotes that are like at least worth talking about uh, from the critics um, that kind of like reiterate what we're saying. Mick Lasada, San Francisco Chronicle, gave it a positive review. Uh, The revelation of Promising Young Woman is that its heightened reality feels more real, closer to actual reality than comedy or drama, which I thought is a good point. I don't know if necessarily true. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what that's his perspective there. Um, one of the negative reviews I thought was really good on the New York Times, um, Promising Young Woman isn't a revenge fantasy so much as a sad tale of warped grief and blazing fury. Cassandra may dis- uh, may despise her pathetic victims, but she loathes herself most of all, which I totally agree with and I thought was like a, a major pillar of this narrative. But where, you know, the reviewer saw it as negative, I kind of see it as a positive. I thought that was kind of one of the points of the film or major points. Did you find yourself like connecting with these critics at all or the letterbox stuff? Uh, yeah. Anything that you want to mention? Yeah, I like Katsoulis's other quote that you pulled from there. Um, a hard candy with a sour center. Promising a woman <laughs> turns sociopathy <laughs> into a style and trauma into a joke. Which is, I mean, e- e- coming back to Fennel's quote about, you know, what the world wants us to believe to be a woman's uh, uh, perspective versus what it actually is, the boiling pit of rage. I do think that there was just like, that was, that was stumbling for me from beginning to end. And while maybe that was the point, uh, it, it, it feels lost to some degree. Um, I do actually like Katie Reif from AV club, her review. Cause I think that ultimately I'm somewhere in the middle and she yeah. wrote, promising young woman fancies itself edgy and relishes complicating the catharsis of something like the scene where Cassandra smashes some douchebags windshield with a tire iron after he yells at her on the road. This happens in the middle of the film. Uh, But while the craft of the film is top notch and the writing razor sharp, it's nihilistic point of view isn't as unprecedented as Fennell seems to think it is. This film is enamored with its own cleverness and it is clever, but there have been a handful of indies this decade that covered similar ground. Um, and I, I think that ultimately that that's true. It's, it's singular and yet it's kind of like putting it all into a blender, uh, and not really not putting a lot of care into how it comes out. Uh, yeah. Letterboxd. Think, <laughs> yeah. Go, okay, ahead. go for it. Uh, no. Letterboxd. I love Letterboxd because <laughs> I, Lucy is this, I follow her on Twitter too. She's a great, she's like, I think she's like a video editor out of Chicago. She's a great social media presence. Uh, she makes these really awesome like end of the year, end of the decade recaps that are mm-hmm. just like beautiful. Um, and so she says the outer layer is a bright candy coated shell, but peeling back, but peeling that back reveals the inside is hollow. Um, and I like that she throws talks about this. I'll throw this in just because it's on my mind. The assistant, which came out this year as well, feels to me like the antithesis of this and something like the movie bombshell in the best way. I highly recommend it for a different approach to this kind of story. Have you seen The Assistant? Yes, it's one of my favorites of the year. Uh, I have not seen it yet. I, I highly recommend it. And so the, and that comes back full circle once again to our yeah. conversation. Uh, I mean, I felt just absolutely on pins and needles and 
gross at the whole time I was watching The Assistant. And while that, yeah, wasn't pleasurable, wasn't entertaining, it at least gave me a lot more insight, I think, into the world of misogyny and patriarchy. And uh, it also still had like an electric lead performance. But I do think that it almost feels like Promising Young Woman is like the, you know, the the assistant with, you know, sugar added. And it's a lot more fun to watch and talk about, but it, it, it's not going to put a wrench into the world the way the assistant would, if people would freaking watch it. (laughs) Well, but I think that that's a really interesting point, but I think uh, one of the things I would say is that the, the assistant who's going to watch the assistant in 10 years. They're going to be watching this movie. So I think that like there's some, something to be said, and that sounds terrible. And it's it's almost like she's like, you know, kind of like a marketer instead of a filmmaker in sort of the style. But she, you know, it works. It gets people to engage with what's happening. Is that is something lost? And I think you're probably saying something is lost, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of trying to attempt to do that. It's a lose-lose scenario, just like just like the world today, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful and pessimistic. All right, anything you want to sort of close out on Promising Young Woman? I, you know, I love this film. I, I think it is absolutely worth seeing. Kind of like you said, I think I'm a lot more positive about it than you are. Um, but I will say that throughout most of the film, I was like, I don't know, what, what is this? I can't even process what's happening. <laughs> right. And then like... Yeah. After seeing it, I was like, oh, I loved it. Then I watched the interviews. I was like, oh, yeah, I was right. I love all of it. Like, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately it's it's really close to uh, something great for me. And I, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I am super excited to see what Fennel does next um, because this is obviously a feature debut. And uh, I think that she it has a style that she's working on and she's going to make a great movie. I just don't necessarily think this is it yeah uh okay so that's season uh, or sorry episode one of season three next week is my choice we are gonna do swingers it is the 25th anniversary of that bro film that i hated uh when i was younger but then in my 20s somehow came to love of course like every bro <laughs> does uh okay thanks for listening guys this has been film trace mm-hmm.